Hello everybody and welcome to this edition of Toby Haydoke's Who's Round, which is the first that I have done post-production on since the sad and untimely death of Paul Sprague, uh, who was the de facto producer, really, of these things. He was the one that checked them and got them out and dealt with the copy and just did everything. He was uh, very much the go-to guy for anything you needed doing, big finish-wise. Um, and he passed away far too young, so I would just like to add my voice to the many tributes, on top of all the stuff that he did, for which nothing was too much trouble, even when I was going, oh, when's the next one out? And he'd got a million other things to do. He never made me feel like I was the pain I was doubtless being. Uh, and he was also just a, a terribly nice man outside of work and all of those other things. And I'd like to um, enunciate my best wishes and feelings to his family and loved ones. A Just Giving page has been set up in his memory, uh, which is www.justgiving, all one word, dot com. And if you do forward slash big dash finish dash Paul dash Sprague forward slash, uh, that should get you to the page, which is a memory of Paul, which is raising money for the British Heart Foundation. So I just wanted to register that. I hope that's okay. Uh, and that you enjoy this next episode of Who's Round, which I'd like to dedicate to Paul's memory. Thanks very much. I'm in a lovely thatched pub, uh, and I hope my next victim's memories will be music to your ears. Oh, you'll love what I did there when you find out who it is. Uh, so I'm going to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Um, hello, Toby. I'm Dominic Glynn, and I was a composer for Doctor Who uh, between 1986 and 1989. Your first job on Doctor Who was essentially the iconic one, So, ha- but let's find out, ha- where did you... How did you start? Were you always musical? And how do you become a sort of professional musician? Oh, I suppose I was always musical in the sense that we had um, like a piano at home and um, my mum was musical and my brother was musical and so there was always music in the house and um, I started by being in a band. Um, I was a keyboard player in a band and Doctor Who really was about my first proper paid music job um, which I got through just sort of writing a letter to John Nathan Turner uh, which is something that I don't think really would happen nowadays you know, writing a letter to the producer and then never having done it before get off of the job but, but that's what happened with me It's a huge risk to take really I mean, you know, in fairness to myself I did send him a lot of demos so it wasn't, he wasn't just taking it on the, the whim of a letter he heard sort of stuff that I could do but nevertheless I'd never done it before and he knew I'd never done it before but he was sort of willing to, to take a big risk with a prime time BBC TV drama series so you know, I'm forever indebted to, to him for sort of being a risk taker really And what sort of music was your band playing? Oh, well, this was the early 80s, so it would have been kind of um, uh, electro-synth pop, really. Um, I suppose we were a sort of proto-Depeche Mode type band, really. 
but we weren't very good. That's the, <laughs> that's the key element, which is why we never made it. But your demo clearly was. So what was on that? Had you done Doctor Who esque music for it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I tailor made a demo, especially for Doctor Who. So I, um, I just made weird noises with my synthesizer, really, and um, and uh, yeah, he went for it, and which is surprising as well because he he wasn't necessarily known for being someone who liked experimental music but I sent him a very experimental sort of sound effect laden synth demo and um or a couple of them you know and he he liked oh I think there's one other thing I did I did um I did a bit of part-time work writing music for um for Rent-A-Kill who were uh, the pest control company and they had a, a video unit and um I wrote a bit of music this sounds so primitive now well, I wrote a bit of music to a film about uh, um, exterminating pigeons, <laughs> and um, and the music was written in the studio live. This is like this could have could have been in the fifties or something. The way I'm describing this, they had no facilities, and none. I went into the studio. They ran the the film of the exterminating pigeons video. It wasn't that horrific. They they just used some sort of glue that they put on the ledges of windows and everything, and it's, it deters pigeons from landing on it basically, and. Um, but they needed this music, uh, and I went in with my synthesizer, and like an old 1920s um, sort of silent movie, I just watched the film and and made played on the keyboard as I watched, and they recorded it onto a piece of tape. There was no multi-tracking or anything. I was literally doing like a, a you know a Mrs. Mills on the piano type thing, and um, and so that was used as a promotional film for Rent-A-Kill, and I sent that to John Nathan Turner as well as the audio demos that I'd done. He always remembered that. He always said, well, it was your exterminating pigeons that did it, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's how I got the work prior to the few years when I started working doing it. Um, the cost of equipment was prohibitive. You know, people couldn't work from home writing music for television. But it come the mid-'80s, it had just bec- about become feasible for people to have enough equipment at home to make something that was, you know, usable in a professional um, TV environment. So, yes, I suppose... Um, it was inevitable that people like me would come along and start doing the jobs that had previously been done by people like the Radiophonic Workshop. And yet your first... Well, I don't know what order it came in, because you did obviously you did the incidental music for um, the first four episodes of Trial of a Time Lord, but you also did the piece of music that heralded all of that, which is the Doctor Who theme. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was commissioned to do the incidental music initially. Um, I, can't, it, it, I can't remember the exact... Running order, all this happened, but certainly commissioned to do four episodes of incidental music. I don't think I had started it. I hadn't started it before I was asked to have a go at doing the theme tune. So that came afterwards. Um, commissioned to come along. I'd been sent a script, and then John rang up and said, "Do you want to have a go at rearranging the theme tune?" So I'm pretty certain that I started doing that before I even wrote a note of incidental music. But I wasn't commissioned to do that initially. And how do you approach something as iconic as that? And how long did it take you to, to? So what do you do? And, and how do you do it? You you get the initial sheet music, do you? And you work off that? Or? Well, I'm not a trained musician. I'm a I'm a musician who plays by ear, and so I, sheet music would have been useless. What I did get was John sent me a reel of tape. I can remember a motorbike rider turning up at my front door with a big reel of tape on which was every arrangement of the Doctor Who theme prior to that. Um, and I just listened, I mean, I, you know, I 
I knew it very well anyway, but obviously I, having it there in my hands and being able to play it backwards and forwards in my tape machine meant I got to know the piece of music really well. And um, uh, I just knew that... I, I remember John to give me some sort of... Um, not instructions, suggestions as to how I might want to approach it, which um, I seem to remember ignoring. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he wanted it... He. I don't know if he actually used the word disco, but I think he implied that he wanted a sort of... I mean, we were a little bit past the disco era for a start. This was 1986. I think he said something like, could you make it sound a bit disco? And uh, I knew that I didn't want to make it sound disco. I, wanted to, I already had a vision of what I wanted to do, which was to make it a little bit more weird um, and just slightly more mysterious. And um, so I think I said to him, oh, yeah, I'll give it a try or something. I think he said, try try some drums on it or something, you know, something along those lines. And I said I'd tried it, but I didn't think it was working. And in, again, in fairness to John, he didn't sort of fight, say, well, I told you. He was, oh, fine, OK, you know, let's hear what you've done. Um, so I just, uh, I took the the, the, arran- the original arrangement and just decided to add some elements of my own and, and play it with my own sounds and you know, create a, a, a different sounding version of the original, taking little bits of all the previous versions that had come before. I say all. There are only two real versions. Distinct. I mean, yes, yeah. yeah, there were sort of slight variations that had been remixed of the previous versions, but there was uh, Delia's original and then Peter Howell's arrangement. Um, and, yeah, I just sort of tried to put my stamp on it, really. And then you did uh, the the score for um, let's call it the mysterious planet, or we'll call it Trial of the Time Lord Parts One to Four. We'll call it whatever we like. And do you know what? The world doesn't end if we call it something different from what you call it. Um, so uh, you did um, uh, Parts One to Four, Trial of a Time Lord. Um, uh, where, and you you mentioned before that you would work in the dub with the director. So what do you remember of Nick Mallet, the director? Of- Oh, Nick was a lovely guy. It was, I think this was his first... Well, it was his first Doctor Who, definitely. Um, so we were both working on something new together um, for the first time. Uh, lovely guy, really, really sort of um, um, respectful of what I was doing, knowing, even though he knew that I'd never done anything before. Um, but he didn't treat me as though I didn't know what I was doing. Um, uh, yeah, really, really nice, easygoing guy to work with. Um, ex-ballet dancer, weirdly. I don't know if you knew he was a ballet dancer. You had something to do with dance to Yeah, yeah, he was a ballet dancer, yeah. Um, Is there a danger that in using the most modern thing, Mm -hmm. that that is actually what dates quicker than anything else, do you think? Uh, Probably, but then I suppose you're not making Doctor Who actually to be a long-lasting... It's not being made as something that's going to be viewed again and again and again over the years. It's being made to be seen there and then and to be seen as top TV at the time it's made and shown. Um, anything that comes afterwards is a sort of bonus, really. Um, I mean, I, from my point of view, I, I really like the fact that Doctor Who used electronic music. Um, you know, I think it's... One of the things I sort of miss about Doctor Who now is I don't think it's quite as cutting edge. It's not just Doctor Who, to be honest. I mean, lots of TV in the 60s used electronic music uh, and it was incredibly cutting edge and wild and weird and there's nothing really like that on TV now and nobody would take that kind of a risk. Um, So, yeah, I suppose in in some ways it does date it. Um, 
but in a way I kind of like that I like the fact that TV looks like it was made the year it was made it kind of gives it a sort of magic just as you know look at an old film from the 1940s you know it's a film from the 1940s and some of that is the music some of that is the look of the thing you know it's all it's all part of what I what I like about TV and film really and you did um, you did the last two episodes as well didn't you with the, the trial of oh, a time yeah, lord yeah, right. with the where you have to do that thing where actually some of your incidental music is part of the music within the thing with the fantasy factory yes which is a, yes which is that's a great right. yeah, yeah. great virtuoso piece, yeah 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 uh, that was just you know great fun to do really it's one of those ones where um it's just very inspiring because yes the music is integrated into the the soundtrack so sorry the the visuals are integrated into the soundtrack um and you know, the particular first one was another Robert Holmes script, mm. um, and he was a great writer anyway. Um, and I loved that episode. Episode thirteen is probably my favourite of uh, that Trial of a Time Lord um, set because it's so strange. <laughs> All the stuff in the Matrix is just is just really odd. And I like the really odd dreamlike stuff. I always like that in Doctor Who anyway. So I was very felt very honoured to be doing a Robert Holmes script and uh, and to be doing you know one of the Matrix set um, stories. Um, you did the last Robert Holmes script, actually. I did do the last oh. Robert. I did a lot of lasts actually. <laughs> I did an awful lot of lasts for Doctor Who. I obviously finished a lot of people off. It's a bit, <laughs> it's awful. Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did. I did Robert Holmes's last one. I did Colin's last one. I did. Um, um, Bonnie's last Bonnie's one. Bonnie's last one. I did Sylvester's last Oh, my God. You did the last, I did, last I did, one. I did the last last. I did Sylvester and Aces last oh, ones. Yeah, you killed yeah. Doctor Who. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you should have just that. had last post. No, <laughs> yeah. no, just as all of your scores. Isn't that awful? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now I think about it. Um, well, so, of course, because Robert Holmes died, that, that last um, script by Pippa Jane Baker um, was produced very quickly. So when you were composing the did you get scripts first? To give yourself the initial idea, yeah, yeah, got scripts first, but I never got the uh, the mysterious script that never was. The um, I don't know if people know the story about Trial of a Time Lord, but it was uh, it, it came about during a, a big period of upheaval with the production crew and the script editor Eric Saywood left uh, and took his script with him, which he'd written for the last episode to replace the only half finished Robert Holmes script because Robert Holmes died, and um, so a script had to be written. By Pip and Jane Baker, without any prior knowledge of what happened in the in the uh, previous script, and I think they had to write it over three or four days or something crazy. Um, but I never got to see the original script, so I really didn't know any of that was going on. To be honest, we knew that Eric Saywood had left. I seem to remember, but we didn't really know that there was any sort of big row or that scripts had been withdrawn or that lawyers had been involved. So I was just sent the script. And uh, you know, it, it just happened around us without me. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't a part of it. Put it that way. But John must have been under enormous pressure at this time. Did did did, did you never see any sign of that from him? Did he protect you from it? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you know, I didn't really have certainly in that stage have that much dealing with John because um, you know I was working from home. After all, I was working in my own home studio, so. My contact with uh, John would be initial phone call, would I like to do X story, whatever it was, um, would I like to do three or four episodes, whatever it was, here's the script, I'll send it to you, it came in the post and I'd read the script, and then uh, I'd probably come and visit a couple of studio days or something to get a flavour of how the thing was going to look, and then I would see John at the dub when the, when the music was being dubbed onto the final episode, and there wasn't a lot in between where I'd actually be... Um, 
having day-to-day discussions with John. So I was certainly not, you know, a party to any problems that John may have had with the with the production and the programme. All I knew was sort of, I suppose, bits of gossip that you get from the director you were working with or the sound people or whatever, and it was just much more along the lines of a bit of gossip rather than, you know, actually being a part of any problems that anybody was experiencing on the show at the time. Well, and then you, you come back for... Uh, one of your few firsts, Sylvester's first season. Yeah. So tell us about your approach to Dragonfire. I think that the um, the instruction from uh, the director, Chris Clough, on Dragonfire was um, to create the icy feel for the music. That was the, the main um, instruction for, for Dragonfire, because uh, it's an ice world after all. So I remember approaching it from a sound perspective originally, which was to create tinkly sounds that were reminiscent of ice. And uh, I also recorded... I can remember recording this um, pull-along toy, which is a children's toy that goes... Like with little bells in it, you know, little on wheels that makes a little tinkly sound. And I remember sampling that and slowing it down to get sort of icicle sounds and all that sort of thing. So anyway, I, I pr- approached it for getting the sounds right initially, and then I suppose um, the emotion of it came afterwards. You know, once I once I got the, the the video in front of me, I could sort of get a feel for the emotional side of the piece. Um, that sort of just followed on naturally after that, really. And it's, it's a question I posed to Roger Lim because he did a very dramatic piece of music called something like Enter the Ergon, and it's a wonderfully dramatic piece of music, yeah. which when you listen to it on Doctor Who, the music, you go, oh, d- d- it's Enter the Ergon, and when you watch it and the Ergon enters, the music is working much harder than the right, Ergon yeah. is. So yeah. you, And you had a thing where you're having to score a dragon who... It's a, it's a decent costume, but it's, not, it's, it's, it's a man in a suit. It so hurts. do you have to... When you're writing that, it's surely a fine line between being so grandiose that you're taking the mickey and in juxtaposing with a man in a suit, but you also can't blatantly take the mickey either. You have to you have yeah. to make it serious without the seriousness being comic by the juxtaposition. Does yeah, that make sense? yeah, it's, it's a very fine line because, um, as you say, it's very easy to over-egg the. If you've got a, a monster on screen that is less than monstrous. If you really overdo the music and go over-dramatic, it kind of does amplify the fact that it's not really that monstrous. So you have the opposite effect. Um, And I suppose, in a way, that's even more prominent in in The Happiness Patrol, where we had the Candyman. And he's not, on the face of it, a a desperately frightening monster. so I thought, I'm not going to do heavy, dramatic music because it just would look silly. Um, I thought he would be, for example, far more scary if the music was kind of sinister, playful, rather than monstrous. And so that was the approach I took for that, which was to make this kind of uh, um, almost circus-like, um, but spooky music for the Candyman. I suppose, I'm trying to remember what I did for for Dragonfire. Yes, he wasn't a terribly scary monster. Um, All I had to do, I suppose, was try and put a bit of weight into the the creature, because he, you know, as you say, it was a man in a suit. Um, What did I do? I did stuff just to try and make the thing sound heavier, Um, but not out-and-out terrifying, because he plainly wasn't, really. 
tracking. Yeah. Um, now, uh, you talk about being in the dub with the director, and, and, and it's one of the eternal mysteries of Doctor Who, so I wondered if you had a part of it. Did nobody at any point say, when you were looking at the end of the episode one, what's he just done that for? I'm, well, I seem to remember Chris Clough saying that, actually. <laughs> uh, yes, I do remember the conversations about, you know, I just... Was, I don't know what he's doing that for. <laughs> I have no idea. You know, and that was oh, all. Oh, how he hooted. Um, I don't think any of us really were too worried about it. I think. Uh, well, I say that. I think maybe Chris was worried about it, but he knew there was nothing we could do about it at that point. Um, I don't think it was. You know, nobody was unduly concerned, but uh, Chris was plainly aware of it. <laughs> um, well, and he he directed the next one that we've uh, briefly alluded to, the the Happiness Patrol, which I think is an absolutely gorgeous score and I also think it's a story that maybe it was where I was at at the time when I was young and teenage and wanting Doctor Who to be unit soldiers and all that sort of thing yeah, so yeah. I was furious about yeah, it so, yeah. and it's a story that in my eyes time has been very kind to mm. and I think stands as a very innovative and blackly comic and it's a story that's about something and it's helped no end I think by that marvellous score that you've got with the, the blues music and all of that and so how much of that did you did you speak to Graham Curry about that I mean was the, it seems to have been a, a subtext of the script yeah well there was a lot of talk with Graham and with Andrew Cartmel and um, and with Chris as well um, but I think Chris was less in, you know music inspired in a way than Andrew and Graham because Andrew and Graham were very much into their jazz and blues um, so I had a lot of discussions with them about the music and I do remember well I knew early on that music was going to be crucial um, because the character obviously is a you know the, the uh, Earl is, oh, is yeah. a blues musician so they wanted the blues to, to play a major part in the music so it was absolute for me it was oh, what a gift to get a job like that because um, I, what always inspires me musically is, is blending different styles of music I'm really fascinated by putting two things together that don't normally sit together and of course the blues and electronics don't normally fit together terribly well I don't think anybody's ever tried it before so to be able to be given that as a commission to do which is basically to do electronic music with a blues influence I thought wow this is fantastic so um, I was inspired from the word go really and yeah most of the discussions about that I think were with Andrew I think probably more than anyone else um Chris, uh, he never, I don't think Chris ever, ever was a great one for sort of telling me in advance what he really, you know, he didn't give a lot of instructions, if you know, he, he trusted me to do what I, what I did, um, and obviously, yes or no, after I'd done it, he would tell me whether he liked it, but um, there weren't a huge amount of dis- um, instructions from Chris as to how, he, how it should go. Um, what I do remember is that the the character of Earl was changed at quite a late stage was changed from being a trumpeter um, in the original script to being a harmonica player and I think that was undoubtedly for the practical reasons of um, a character wandering through three episodes um, carrying a trumpet was a little bit unrealistic (laughs) I suppose they they originally were thinking um, Miles Davis and then I think they thought actually Miles Davis very cool, but just couldn't couldn't narratively be carrying his trumpet with him everywhere. Mm-hmm. Whereas obviously the you can still be very atmospheric with a with a with a harmonic, as you say, and it can slip in his back pocket. Well, and then the time came for you to kill off Doctor Who um, with uh, <laughs> with a different director, with Alan Waring, but another great score. I have to say, I'm not just saying that. Um, where you've got this very sort of savanna like heat 
of of uh, Doctor Who Quarry that's filmed marvelously, and you've got Sunny Days, and um, survival is very much you know Doctor Who in the desert, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and again, um, a very different uh, approach to the to the story musically, um, and I. Th- I remember more instruction from Alan Waring on this one uh, musically. He had a very d- distinct idea of what he wanted on that one. Um, and as you say, the sort of desert, western feel was the kind of thing he was going for. But yet again, from my point of view, you know, nice to be able to combine what I tend to do, which is electronics, with, with uh, another style altogether. So using guitars in with the uh, electronics and, uh, and having that kind of um, open-air... Um, Wild West frontier music combined with the the, the spacey feel of the um, you know the science fiction storyline uh, right up my street really so great to work with another musician you know I work with the harmonica player Adam Burney on Happiness Patrol and I work with a guitarist called Dave Hardington um, on Survival and I think from my point of view they're probably my favourite scores because I like the collaboration musically working with somebody else who contributing their own emotion into what we're doing you know that's the thing about electronics i love working with electronics but it's difficult to always get the emotion through with purely electronic sound so using um uh, an individual musician or, or musicians um, really helps to bring through that, that emotional side as well what so what what was next for you well i suppose um I mean, I, I've carried on working as a composer in TV ever since, so I've been lucky. I haven't been writing specifically for many shows. I write production music, library music, and I've been doing that since 1990. And um, it's, um, it's a supply of music in any and every style of music for TV and film production. When shows don't necessarily have a writer who's writing music specifically for a show but they just need some music they will go to ready written music and that's where I come in I write music in any style which goes on albums or is put online available for TV and film production use and um, as a result I've had music in The Simpsons, um, which is always bizarre, um, fantastic, um, to, um, I don't know, think, I always think of my favourites, things like John, John Stewart's Daily Show I've had music in, um, Red Dwarf, um, Eerie Indiana, um, stuff all around the world as well. Um, it, it's, it's not just UK-based, it's a lot of, a lot of it's US, Japanese, German, um, just crops up in crazy places. And so when you're not writing to a specific script or, or setting um, how do you what do, do you picture something do you picture an, a, a physical location or a, a series of actions to, 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 to start moving the, the music along well normally I get a brief um, so the publishers who I write the music for send me a brief and say we need something like four tracks for an album of uh, TV detective music or something so you have a sort of vague brief that you've got to do TV detective or murder mystery or um, or I'm just trying to think how wide it can be or um, 24 hour news or football or so you get you get given a very specific brief so you're trying to write something yeah you're imagining in your head where this might get used um, or you might be told quirky characters or something um, the briefs can be about a t- particular type of program 
like I say, a thriller or something, or they can be about a, an instrument. They might say, we want to do an album of solo piano. Uh, or they can be um, about um, a mood. So you might say, they might say, we're doing an album of um, uh, love stories or something, or science fiction. Or they might say, we're doing drum and bass and dubstep, or we're doing... Um, you know, it's so wide. It, you, you, depending on what the project is, the inspiration comes from either picturing a particular type of program or film that you might imagine the music being used in, or it comes from what people have done before. Um, or it's just so wide. I mean, that's the great thing from a composer's point of view. It's a it's a great job because I can't possibly get bored because there's so many different, you know, um, uh, so many different styles of music to be written. Um, and one week I could be writing a string quartet and the next next week I could be writing a piece of techno or, or a piece of drum and bass or something. So it's it's really, really wide. And what about you, you know, you started off in a band, what about live performance? Well, there hasn't been much chance. I've, I mean, I've been lucky because I've, I've been commissioned almost continually since I finished Doctor Who, so I don't get a lot of chance to perform. I mean, I, I DJ a bit, so um, I... Particularly during the 90s, I did a lot of dance music, electronic underground dance music and techno, um, and I DJ a lot of that stuff. So I, I DJ at festivals, and and um, I haven't been doing it for the last year or so, actually, because I've been so busy. But um, that's the closest I've got, really, to getting out and performing live. Um, a couple of events I did, um, as, uh, working with a guy called BJ Cole, um, who's a pedal steel guitarist and also I did a, a little dance jazz project called Cyber Jazz um, and that was all during the 90s and the early 2000s um, but apart from that, no, apart from DJing it's all been studio based stuff really And uh, you mentioned, we, we mentioned um, before we started recording that uh, you are a fan um, but to a sensible degree of, of, of Doctor Who um, so what is it about the show do you think that means we're talking about it 50 years after it began? <coughs> Uh, well, I'm pretty certain. I mean, obviously, it's um, it's unique. It really is unique. There is no show like Doctor Who in the sense that it's got such a wide um, it's got such a wide brief. You know, the fact that you can set a story in any time zone, in any part of the universe, uh, means that you can keep that show going forever. Uh, and it's quirky and it's different and it doesn't follow any of the usual cliches um, it's just totally individual I mean, who and who would come up with a concept like that in this day and age nobody would come up with the idea of a show where a guy travels around the world in a police box and he's 900 years old and, um, and the police box can travel through time and space it's, it's so weird um, if it hadn't been going for 50 years, it could never be invented now. <laughs> so I, I think that's that's why it's still going, really. You know, it's it's just, it's totally unique. Uh, we ask you to nominate a charity. Um, well, yes, absolutely. I mean, I've got far too many friends at the moment um, who are suffering from cancer, so I'd like cancer research. And uh, finally, it's 50 years old this year. Uh, this is hopefully being listened to by Doctor Who fans. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans around the world on the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who? Oh, 50 years. Well, um, from my point of view, definitely um, please keep classic Doctor Who alive. I think my gripe at the moment is that um, Doctor Who has become 
two separate entities, you old Doctor Who, known now as classic Doctor Who, and Doctor Who, which is what we have now. And I just think uh, I'd like people to remember the legacy and to keep it going and to not separate the two off quite so much, to keep it alive, really. It's a nice sentiment, and we'll leave it at that. I will say, Dominic Glynn, thank you very much. Pleasure. Brilliant. Hope that was all right for you. Yeah. That was great. My thanks to Dominic, whose remixes of the Doctor Who theme have just been released. You can find them online if you look for Doctor Who theme, The Gallifrey Remixes, or Dominic Glynn, The Gallifrey Remixes. They're available on iTunes, and very good they are too. I always like a variation on a theme. Uh, His charity is Cancer Research, which is www.cancerresearchuk.org. And here's a preview of the next Who's Round with an actor who sometimes writes, which did he do for who? Mm, not telling you. He said, I'm starting up a, a series, uh, a soap called E8. And would you be interested in writing for that? And I thought, yeah, I would. So it became EastEnders. And uh, I wrote for EastEnders then. I wrote episode 13, I think. Uh, no experience of writing for television or anything, but um, I wrote them for more or less 10 years, I think, wrote for EastEnders, but under the pseudonym. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. Breaking bubbles and other stories. May I ask how you got here? Oh, the usual way. Which is? We landed. In a spaceship? That's right. There's been an internal security breach. Where? Prisoner's cell. It's been locked. What you do that? No idea. Ah! My jailers have arrived. Oh, they don't sound very friendly. Please tell me that doesn't mean they're going to shoot us. I'm terribly sorry. The bomb's through there. Bomb? If I only had some idea what she was talking about. Ah. Did you stop the launch? Afraid not. If I can work out what's wrong with him, maybe I can work out what's wrong with me. Doctor, say something! Oh no! Doctor! There's a choice coming for all of us. You don't want to pick unwisely. I have made my choices. I'll live with some. Do you still have a drawing of this artifact at least? Here, this is what the artifact looks like. You! That's creepy! Hello. Uh, hello. My name is not Johnson, in case you're wondering. Okay. It's Michael Andrew Jennings. Oh, right. Madam, prepare yourself for a shock. We intercepted a message beamed from this location. It broadcasts on a frequency used by an alien life form which closely resembles... Oh. Did you tell anyone at work about the gnomes? No, Dad, you said not to. Are you trying to break out of my dad's shed? 
No. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.